Welcome to Clarity, hosted by me, Larry McCann. Welcome back. This is episode two. Thank you so much for joining us again. If you missed the first part, there's a very informative and educational interview with Miranda Sajak. She's a director in the film industry and provides a very insightful perspective onto the many issues women might face in the industry. I want to thank all of the subscribers. You're really making a difference. Anyone who can write a review, that would mean the world to me. If we want to get on the charts, we got to have reviews. If you don't like the show, maybe don't be too honest. Otherwise, I would love to hear your thoughts. Constructive feedback is key. I would also like to reach out to the community. I'm going to need a Twitter handle and a hashtag. Any suggestions would be fantastic. Feel free to ask me questions at any time. That's what I'm here for. I'm a resource, just like my interview subjects. Right now, I'd like to do a brief summary of some of the news that's happened in the past week. But first, oh, that doesn't feel good. Those pickles were a mistake. Larry, did you eat the whole jar? What are they there for? Oh, you know my condition. What's your condition? You just like pickles too much? Exactly. Oh, I'll get the antacid. Anyways, as I was saying, oh, cut to the interview, cut to the interview. Silicon Valley in particular is starting to get some attention as well. Companies like Google, Uber, and Tesla are all facing serious allegations and various scandals. From outright sexual harassment and discrimination to unequal pay and disparities between promotions. Does it make it worse that the tech industry presents itself as progressive and a meritocracy? Yes, I think the tech industry, similarly to Hollywood, has presented itself as liberal and as certainly progressive and as the kind of industry where, you know, if you're good enough, you can get far. And those are all lies. So yeah, I mean, I do think it makes it worse. I think it's piling a lie on top of the other issues that are involved. I don't think it necessarily matters if somebody is being harassed in construction, which maybe is a more conservative industry, or in in the offices at Uber. Like, harassment is harassment no matter what your job is. So that's bad no matter where the person happens to be working. But I do think there's an element of hypocrisy, certainly, in those industries that are presenting themselves as friendly and inclusive and open when they're not truly that. I must say, it makes me very angry personally absolutely furious. (laughs) In the context of politics, it gets to be very murky. On the liberal side, you have an individual like Senator Al Franken. Should he immediately resign, or do we have to consider what losing his vote might do to the political landscape? It's a good question, and it's a tough question. For me, I would say, just speaking personally, my first reaction to the allegations was that he should leave. That was my number one reaction. Following that, having read a little bit more, I'm in the position where I think that he made a good call demanding an investigation. 
I think that that is certainly step one for all of these things. And I think that that shouldn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. An investigation should take place and whatever that investigation turns up should have an impact. I'm always going to be the person who says believe women. So if this woman says that she was harassed, abused, assaulted, whatever she wants to phrase it as, As we said with WME, I mean, a break wasn't really enough, but he at least took a break. I don't have an issue with Al Franken taking a break while an investigation takes place. That wouldn't bother me. It's really got to be not about which side of the aisle you're on, but really about the crime. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent. These crimes happen across aisles and they're a problem no matter who does it. You mentioned believing the victim. Mm -hmm. What would you say to anyone who claims that these women are just trying to cash in on a frivolous lawsuit? Well, first of all, I would say we're pretty well aware that statistically these kinds of false claims only happen at the same rate as false claims in any other crime. So mugging or any sort of violent assault or shoplifting or whatever it may be, like literally the same rate of false claim, and that's between 2 and 8%. So let's say it's at the highest amount, which would mean that 92% of claims are credible. And we already know that a vast majority of victims don't come forward, so that number might be less or it might be more, I'm not sure. But what we've learned is that 92% of claims are credible, at least. If I had a 92% chance that I had cancer, I would be pretty sure that I needed to treat it. So at the end of the day, I'm going to say until such time as more than 7% of rapists see jail time, until such time as women feel comfortable coming forward, until such time as we actually have legitimate legal consequences to harassing, assaulting, abusing, raping um, anybody, male or female, I am going to say believe the victim, and I don't really care if that victim is a man or a woman, and I don't care if the perpetrator is a man or a woman. But I will say this also to the question of cashing in. I'm not seeing a lot of civil suits coming out of this. I think there is maybe one towards the Weinstein Company, I believe, but I haven't seen civil suits beyond that. So I think the idea that people, that victims are going around making false accusations in order to get money is a little bit disingenuous because I don't think it happens that often. And I don't think that it's something that is a major issue at this point in time. I hear also that, oh, she's doing it to ruin his reputation or whatever, which I mean, this is the first time I can remember in history that any man's reputation has ever been ruined by these kinds of allegations. I mean, Casey Affleck's still going strong and he's got some allegations against him. Um, Alexander Payne has some pretty heavy allegations against him and he's still going strong. Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, I can go on forever with lists of men who have been accused of things and are still doing okay. Um, You know, obviously Bill Clinton has also been accused of things. I don't see accusations in and of themselves as reputation ruining. I think when you have 100 women accusing you, maybe. But the fact that it takes that many for somebody to even believe it is unfortunate. So I think it's a situation where I don't necessarily believe that false allegations are as much of an issue as people would like them to be. I agree. How do you feel about President Trump weighing in on this conversation? Well, you know, as somebody with something like 14 allegations against him, how many does he have now? As somebody with a similar number of allegations to Louis C.K., at least, against him, I would say that I don't particularly care what his opinion is. 
If he, as he posits, is truly there to clean the swamp and clean things up in Washington, then he should have no problem with an investigation against himself in the same way that Al Franken called for an investigation against himself. If you found yourself on the wrong end of an investigation, how would you handle that situation? Get a good lawyer. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, that's flippant, but I don't know that there's a way to handle that other than that. I mean, I think you have to recognize that the justice system doesn't always work, but do the best you can with what you have. Just be as transparent as possible. Yeah. Can you think of any situations that aren't as high profile, but can create comparatively hostile work environments? Basically, I'll be overlooking forms of misogyny in our day-to-day -day lives. Sure. You know, we've seen, and I've been hearing some rumblings about, particularly women in the service industry, women in the restaurant world, Tom Colicchio put out an open letter about the issues that he'd seen with harassment in cooking and in the restaurant world. I think hospitality services and hotels and nail salons and so forth. We've certainly seen reports throughout the years and rumblings throughout the years that a lot of those work environments, perhaps even especially ones that may be um, highly populated by women, tend to be hotbeds for assault and harassment. I think it would be harder for me to come up with a work environment that wasn't hostile, to be honest. I can't actually think of one that isn't. I think we are overlooking and accepting forms of harassment and misogyny and sexism in literally every work environment. What are some ways that men in particular can alleviate some of that? Well, there are a couple of ways that I think of that come to mind right away. One of them is something that I talked about with Ryan Coogler a while ago and Paul Feig as well, which is essentially hiring women when men are in a position to make a recommendation for somebody, whether it's somebody on a panel or somebody for a job in their company or whatever, putting women in positions of power. And not all women are going to be great people and not all women are going to be feminist and not all women are whatever. But we see time and again in the entertainment industry when women are in higher positions of power, films are more inclusive and television is more inclusive. And that's sort of an easy answer as far as a way that a man who has some element of power, even if it's just recommending somebody to a friend and saying, hey, you know, this woman that I worked with on this project was really talented and really great and you should think about hiring her. That's the kind of thing that I would love to see more of. And I think that that's something that is easy. I think also mentoring in Hollywood in particular, it's an industry where a lot of jobs grow out of mentorships. And a lot of those mentorships are casual. They're mentorships over drinks or over golf or over gambling in Vegas or whatever. But it's men having a boys night out. And I think if we see more men saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to take on this person in my industry who's below me and is a woman or a person of color or trans or whatever it might be and put some effort into training them up, I think we'll see some positive change there. So I think that's the kind of thing that men can do to give back and to help even the scales a little bit and make things better in work environments. Say you witness sexual misconduct, whether it's in the workspace or in your personal life. What responsibility do we all have and how can we help a situation like that? It's a tough question because I think as somebody who has some self-defense training, we're sort of trained to keep yourself alive. And I think that that's important. Make sure that you're not putting yourself in a life or death high risk situation. That's hard to say when you may be seeing somebody else in a similar situation, but please call 911. 
If you don't, if it's not like a life or death situation, but it's just a really inappropriate one, first of all, of course, again, weigh your safety in the situation. Nobody wants or needs somebody to get hurt here, but if you're able to interject, do so. If you're able to stop the situation, if you're in a position of power and you can stop the situation, absolutely step in and stop the situation. If you're not able to stop it in that moment, Personally, I would find a way to talk with the victim and make sure they're okay and ask if there's anything that they would want me to do because there's going to be different things in different situations. I would think that giving the victim some power over a situation is a positive. Beyond that, it's really hard. I'm hearing a lot from women who have reported things to HR and gotten fired or let go later on because of some other stupid excuse that's not real. I would just say be as careful as you can. Do what you can to help the person who is the target to the best of your ability. If you're able to take any kind of self-defense or de-escalating course, do it so that you have the tools at your fingertips. If there is a higher up that something can be reported to who will be trusted and will take it seriously, then I would say do that. But we all know that's not always the case. So if it's possible, let's say the person was harassed and they can't get out of their job situation and their boss is a jerk or is the person who was harassing them. If it was me and I saw something like that happen and I knew that I couldn't do anything within the context of that work environment, I would say keep a record of everything and then do whatever I can to help that person get out of that job. Find them a new job somewhere else if possible. I think we can both agree that law enforcement and HR departments have clear limitations. Are there any third-party organizations that have proven to be an effective tool? I've heard that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission can be okay. I don't know if that's true. I think it may be industry-specific. I don't know if unions are of use. I don't believe that they have done a great job in Hollywood. I don't know if they will start to. I want to say that they're trying to be better, but I'm not sure. I honestly don't know. I think that would be a case-by-case basis and would require some research. If an organization like that was being founded, specifically in Hollywood, what advice would you give them? I would want that organization to do what they could to, and this is going to sound backwards, but I'll explain why, but to essentially ingratiate themselves to the best of their ability to the agencies in particular and to the studios and the networks. And the reason being that they could very easily be seen as a threat to those businesses. And I think if they can find a way to be seen as an ally, as somebody who's trying to make the job better, to reduce instances of potential lawsuits to make the work environment a safer place for everybody and a place where everybody can thrive and do better work. And thereby, ultimately, because at the end of the day, these companies, part of why they don't investigate things or why they brush them under the rug is that they're trying to be businesses who make money and they think that investigating could lose them some business, right, if something comes out. So if you're an organization who's doing this and you can tread lightly enough that you can make yourself seen as an ally while still being an ally primarily to the victim, and I think that's the important thing, and I think that's where HR and some of these law enforcement places drop the ball because they end up just being an ally to the company rather than to the victim. But I think if if this organization, this fictional organization, can be seen as somebody who these studios and networks can go to who can actually help, who can actually find ways to aid victims and to stop situations from becoming more than they have been, to stop them at the first sign of problem rather than waiting for 20 people to report. The only way to do that is to get the bigger companies to trust you. And I think that that's important. Do you think that's realistic? 
or is the patriarchy too ingrained that it would be an upward battle? I would say now it's an upward battle. I hope that it's not always, but I think now it is. What kind of change do you think we might see in the next 20 to 25 years? I honestly don't know if there will be any change in the next 20 to 25 years. I would like to see there be. I think we're in a world where, as I'm sure you're seeing, we have about a 15-minute news cycle at this point. Things get forgotten very quickly. We've already kind of glossed over the last couple of mass shootings, and we've kind of moved on from that, and nothing's really changed, and there hasn't really been any big systemic push for it. There was for about a week, and then that week ended, and now we're on to other things. So until we're at a point where change is sort of undeniable, and I don't know how that looks, I don't know if that's the moment we're at right now, or if it's something that we still need more growth to get to. Until we're there, I, I don't see there being change. So again, like, you know, check in with me in five years, and I'll let you know if I feel as though there's been positive change moving forward. But to date, I'm not seeing it. Like you're saying with the mass shootings, how do we avoid becoming overwhelmed by all the allegations or numb to these stories? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm honestly not sure. For me, a lot of these things that have come out have ended up being personal because I, I knew somebody involved or I knew somebody making an allegation. So that's been personal to me. I would imagine that people who have been personally impacted by losing a family member to gun violence may be more likely to find a way to try and stop that from happening again, whatever that way may be. I think it's one of those things where it's tough to not become either jaded or cynical or just overwhelmed, and I'm not sure how you don't. And I want to say some of it is just making sure you're taking care of yourself. It's really easy to get sucked into the news cycle and to just be constantly reading a thousand articles a day about what's going on and what, <laughs> what crazy thing happened today. It's really easy to, to become that person who gets really involved in that. And if that helps you, then more power to you. But if it becomes overwhelming, it's okay to take a step back and recharge and then kind of come back with a plan of action ready to fight some more. And I would say that that's not a bad thing. I do read a lot of news and sometimes I'll take notes on something and say like, all right, well, this is something that I want to make sure that I keep pushing for, whether it's legislation about statute of limitations about certain crimes or whatever it might be that's kind of in the news that day. And then I'll go back to that when I contact my representatives and I'll say like, hey, you know, I called you guys about this three weeks ago and I'm still calling you about it. So that's the kind of thing where I think <laughs> making notes to yourself can actually really be useful because it is really easy to get overwhelmed and to get swamped in the news cycle so much that you don't really remember what happened last week because what's happening this week is so much. I think it's just really about trying to keep yourself in a, a healthy headspace and, and just able to focus on the things that matter to you. And no matter what I say, no matter what I do, no matter what anybody else says or does, there are going to be some people who just won't ever care about this. And that's just what it's going to be. So I think if we can get the people that do care to keep caring and to keep fighting, then I think we'll be in a better place, hopefully, like I said, five to ten years from now. I hope so as well. You mentioned recharging and maintaining a positive headspace. Do you have any advice or techniques to help achieve that? I travel because I think that getting out of the place that I'm in is helpful. 
I don't travel a lot because I can't afford to, but you know, I travel when I can afford to and I travel where I can afford to, even if it's just a day trip out of town. Seeing new scenery and new environments, new people, that helps me recharge. Watching a good movie, reading a good book, spending time with my friends, family, playing with my kittens, (laughs) you know, I mean, everybody has something different that's going to do it for them. Maybe it's playing a sport with some friends or maybe it's going for a run or maybe it's working on a creative project that you're really invested in. It's going to be something different for everybody, but uh, I think it's finding what that is. And because each person is going to have something different, it's not going to necessarily be the same thing for everybody. Find what makes you feel good. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got, which is going to sound selfish, but it's actually really important, is to make sure that you do something for yourself every day. And that can be meditating or listening to a song you like or reading one page in that book that you're really invested in or writing a poem or going for a walk or whatever it is, taking yourself to a nice dinner. I think that that's really vital and, you know, maybe even now more than ever to make sure that you're taking care of yourself because you can't really be helpful to any sort of activism if you're worn down and sick and tired and unable to do anything. So take care of yourself. That would be my advice. In respect to traveling, have you been to any places where the dynamics between men and women are more positive? My hometown is pretty positive about it. I would say that's probably the only place I've been in my life where it's been more positive. I'm from Massachusetts. It's a pretty chill place. Otherwise, no, um, you know, no. Do you think there ever was a time or place where there was greater equality between men and women? No. Can you imagine a future where that is the case? I can hope for one but I have a hard time imagining one. What advice would you give to women who are interested in pursuing careers in male-dominated fields? I would say don't give up. Make sure that you are taking care of yourself. Have a good support system. Find one if you don't have one. That might be online. I'm sure there are groups online. There might be industry-related groups that are specifically women-oriented or um, specifically LGBT-oriented or whatever it may be that you might be able to join and be a part of. Join those groups if you can. Try and find the people that care about you and that care about your journey and that want to support it and want to support you and that you can support. Everybody is generally below somebody and above somebody, right? So I've found that it's helpful for me to pass on what I know and what I've learned and how I've been able to help other people get jobs or get a part in something that they wanted to act in or whatever it is. Like I worked hard to try and pay it forward and I think that that's been helpful to me. So I would say do that as well. If you're seen as somebody who is happy to help out others in your career, that can be a real benefit always be open to that, particularly in terms of uh, professional settings. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that anybody do something that makes them uncomfortable if, if somebody's asking you to, you know, always wash the dishes in the office or whatever, and that's kind of a gendered task and the men aren't being asked, then that's not cool. But if somebody needs a hand with a report and you can pitch in, then go for it. I think that ties back into what you were saying about maintaining a positive headspace. When you support others, it can really come back and help you as well. Yeah, it really does. And it doesn't always come right away. I talk about the job that I do right now, my my day job, which kind of came to me after interning five years later. I then got hired by my internship head to do something else. So it was the kind of thing where like I had helped her out years ago and she knew me and remembered me and we kept in touch. And then now she's helping me out. Always do the best you can and try and help other people and it can come back. Miranda, feel free to veto this question. 
Does your sexuality have any place in this conversation? Sure. Something that I've been talking about with some of my friends recently is the idea of intersectionality, which sounds like one of those SAT words. Kimberly Crenshaw coined intersectionality, and she is a Black legal scholar, and I can't speak for her, but my understanding of the word is that power and the lack of power exist at intersections. So when I talk about my own struggles as a woman in Hollywood, I'm also talking about my struggles as a queer woman in Hollywood. If some of my friends were to talk about their struggles, it might be as a Black woman in Hollywood or as a Black queer man in Hollywood or whatever it might be. The idea that any of us exist in just one position in the sphere of power that we exist in is sort of a false one. As a white woman, I may have more power in some areas of the world than my black male counterparts. Whereas in some areas of the world, because they're men, they may have more power than I do, but because I'm white, I may have more power than they do. So that's the kind of thing that intersectionality sort of addresses is how power and privilege and the lack thereof exist at these different intersections. So I try and kind of look at the big picture of things. I recognize that as a queer woman, I'm probably going to have a harder time than a straight woman might in certain environments. Or I might have a harder time as a queer woman than a queer man might, you know. So it's it's that kind of thing where you kind of have to take the full picture into account when you think about feminism. And when I think about feminism, I think about it at its best, addressing all of those intersections and fighting for racial equality as much as for gender equality. And if it's not doing that, then I don't think it's really working. So that's something that I think is vital. I agree. I totally agree. Our society seems to view everything as black or white. Spectrum is not just an internet provider. As far as my own sexuality, I identify as a heterosexual cisgender male. But there's probably a sliding scale to that. And we need to be comfortable with that dynamic. Yeah, agreed. Agreed, for sure. What advice would you give someone who may be struggling to embrace their identity or their sexuality? Identity is interesting because it is something that you end up falling into yourself or choosing yourself. It really depends on the person. After spending time around other people who shared my identity, I realized that I shared their identity or that it took me a long time to realize what it was. And other people will say, when I was three years old, I knew that I was XYZ. People know, um, and that wasn't a chromosomal joke, I was just throwing out letters, but people sometimes know in different ways and in different times and in different environments and for different reasons. So I would say, if you're questioning, this is going to sound really like schmaltzy, but enjoy the journey. All of us are questioning something. I don't think there's anybody at any point in their life who isn't questioning something about where they are or who they are or how they present themselves or whether they're at the right place or the best place for themselves or whether they've achieved what they wanted to. Because we are all questioning, embracing those that are and loving them for however and whoever they identify as, I think is vital for those of us who have amounts of privilege and for those of us who are questioning to just try not to be too hard on yourself because hopefully things will come clear. And and if they don't, I think that's okay too. I don't think there's anything wrong with spending your whole life questioning. I think that's okay too. Not to undermine my own argument and create a duality. But there seems to be some people who can accept responsibility and others who only blame. What do you think might cause some people to externalize all their problems? 
I think a lot of that comes from, and I'm going to get really like psych 101 on this, but I think a lot of that comes from fear, fear, whether that's fear of personal responsibility or it could be from having been shamed for something as a child or not feeling like you fit in yourself in your own skin. And I think that can make people really uncomfortable. It's hard, you know, like we were talking about before, our society isn't really built to have honest and open conversations about basic things, consensual sex, right? We were talking about that earlier, that our society isn't really built to be honest and open about that. And I think because of that, we're also not built to necessarily be honest and open about so many other things. And that can make people really uncomfortable. And when you are uncomfortable, different people react in different ways, right? There's like the basic fight, flight, or freeze, right? And I think that can be applied to not just life or death situations, but also to how people interact with the world. And I think that's something where somebody may be wired in their own way and may have to work at not not necessarily pointing fingers, but figuring out how they themselves are perhaps sharing some responsibility for whatever is going on. And granted, that's never to victim blame. That's never to say that like a victim shouldn't be able to come forward and say this person did something to me. People do do bad things and people do bad things to each other. That's not that's not something I would ever dismiss. But I definitely see what you're saying as far as people either taking responsibility uh, and trying to find a way to help fix things or saying, oh, it's not my responsibility. It's this other person who did this bad thing and they should be blamed for it we're all in this together. So uh, if we can find a way forward that, you know, everybody can benefit from, then that's a, a net benefit for everybody. You mentioned in our society, the inability to discuss certain issues. Personally, I blame the Puritans. What causes do you think there might be? Um, whew. I have no problem saying that colonizers probably had a lot to do with it. Um, you know, I think I think anytime you're sort of basing a country off of the genocide and labor of uh, other people, um, and then that's going to create a difficult situation to live with from there. I think that that's uh, certainly probably part of it. I don't know if any one one person or group can be targeted in that regard. I mean, I have friends who would just laugh at me and would just be like, oh, it's white people. And, you know, yeah, sure, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> it usually is. It usually is. They're probably right about that. I don't know if there's any one, one thing. I think there's a confluence of historical bases, whether we're talking about Victorian attitudes or um, Puritan attitudes or that... Uh, <laughs> That period of the Bush years after 9-11 attitudes um, of restriction and conservatism and a lack of openness and a, a need to sort of trend towards traditional and traditional usually means white male Christian traditional standards. You know, I think that all comes into play. To tie back into our earlier conversation about repercussion and punishments, I was reading a New Yorker article that mentioned the behavior in Silicon Valley is often linked. The same kind of people who may victimize someone sexually are also inclined to other negative behavior like tax evasion or racial discrimination. In the past, it's been hard to convict specific individuals like Al Capone for the crimes that we know they commit, in his case, murder. In respect to all these sexual allegations, it may be easier to charge these individuals with something like tax evasion. In respect to these sexual predators, are we letting them off easy if we jail them for tax evasion instead of these sexual allegations? I mean, I don't think we should ever feel good for letting somebody off the hook for sexual misconduct, but I also won't lose any sleep if any of these guys go to jail for tax evasion. <laughs> That's not going to bother me. 
I think they're separate issues, certainly, and I do think that it would be great in an ideal world if we could catch everybody and prosecute them for the crimes that they've committed and for all of the crimes that they've committed, not just the easy-to-prove-on-paper ones. But there's also, you know, something to be recognized, I suppose, that it's perhaps easier to, in a lot of instances, gather a paper trail of proof if somebody does something illegal that is written down and processed through a computer than it is if they do something that is in a room that only two people were in <laughs> with no recording devices that uh, happened 10 years ago. There's a reason why tax evasion often gets people faster than some of their other crimes because a lot of these other crimes are harder to prove. Personally, I find it fascinating that there may be a link between these behaviors. Yeah. Have you noticed anything that may tie together all these accused individuals? It's all about power. So if somebody is willing to cross a line in one area of their, their quest for power or whatever that could be couched as, if they're willing to cross a line, they're willing to cross a line, you know? Um, and, and I don't know that anything would necessarily stop them. I think there's a reason that we see a lot of criminals who have committed crimes in different different areas, and I do definitely think it ties back to power. Specifically addressing women in positions of power, it seems like they're often held to a different standard. Yeah. If they're aggressive and assertive, oh, she's a bitch, she's a busybody. Why do you think there's such a difference in how we treat men and women in leadership positions? It sort of goes back to that whole patriarchal structure we were talking about in the beginning where we have gendered behaviors. Society has decided that to truly be a man, you need to be a certain way, and to truly be a woman, you need to be a certain way. Like I said at the beginning, I think that that hurts both men and women. I'm sure that I have a lot of male friends who have, um, you know, body image issues as a result and who have, you know, issues with vulnerability as a result and issues with the idea of expressing emotion and all of these things that are seen as sort of feminine or what should make a man. You know, I'm, I'm sure that that damages them. And I think that that's something that, you know, in an ideal world, feminism is working to help as well. Are there any ways you can think of that will help us as a society to address those issues? There are sociologists doing some of that work as far as I've seen some documentaries on it. I know the Representation Project who did like misrepresentation and they did another one about men as well. I want to say Soot Jolly did one on men from like 15 years ago. Um, I think it's called like Tough Guys or something. I think it's G-U-I-S-E, not G-U-I-S. I think there are a couple of them out there that are kind of talking about how, you know, media represents men in a certain way and how media expects men to be a certain way and how that could be damaging in its own right. And I think some of that is going to come from the top down, which is sort of like Hollywood representation and video game representation and all of that. Some of that is also going to have to come from the bottom up, which is parenting and men deciding to be open to having conversations with each other about how they feel about things and not just what they want or, you know, what they've achieved in terms of material power. But hey, uh, you know, <laughs> that movie Moonlight was really moving. You know what I mean? Like if a guy could say that, a straight, <laughs> a straight guy who was very confident in himself and in who he was, could have that conversation with another straight guy who was also very confident in who he was and, and how he presented himself. I think those kinds of things, having those conversations, not being afraid to have those conversations, not being afraid to cry or to be open about how they feel and emotions in general, I think that would be a, a big step forward. I totally agree. I think the key is don't qualify it. Yeah. Don't say, I liked Moonlight, but I'm not gay. That defeats the whole purpose. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Say, that movie was really touching to me, you know, that's it. 
because I can say that and <laughs> nobody's gonna call me out for it or use some gendered slur at me because I said that a movie made me cry or that a movie really was emotionally moving to me. So I think that kind of thing, that kind of cutting back on that and calling out that behavior when we see it. If, you know, I'm in a group and uh, this happened the other day, I was in a group of women and they were kind of tearing down other women and I was like, that's not cool. You know, let's not do that. That's it. Let's just not do that. And I think that's all it takes. I think it, it just takes one person saying, you know what, let's not tear somebody down for being honest about how they feel about something, but let's also not tear people down for just being themselves. Does the men's right movement warrant conversation? No. I agree. <laughs> we may get to it at some point, but in my mind, it's a bit of a strange issue. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any closing words? Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, thank you so much for having me. Miranda, thank you for being our first guest. I can't thank you enough. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. That was part two of my interview with Miranda Sajak. Hopefully she'll be back and join us again in the future. Right now, I would like to discuss constructive criticism. A lot of people seem to have a lot of trouble articulating how they feel without insulting or belittling people. It's a tricky balance, I'll admit it. It's not easy to engage people when they're emotionally attached to the subject matter, and most of us are. My advice to you, Try to take your ego out of the conversation. My key guidelines are, don't be rude, make sure you're listening, and always, always have a reason. You shouldn't be trying to break down someone's philosophy or political ideology unless there's a reason. If you're just trying to be disruptive, save your energy, do something else. I gotta say, positive reinforcement is a very useful tool. Will, I know I'm hard on you, but you do a good job, and I can tell you work hard. Larry, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. Thank you. You see how you just pander a little bit, and they're already on your side. You don't even have to be all that convincing. People want to hear good things about themselves. I thought we were finally connecting. Anyways, as I was saying, there's a lot of dynamics in any conversation, and it's tricky to balance them all. Defining constructive criticism is a great place for us to start. My definition is that it can be honest and it can be brutal, but at the heart of it, you're trying to help the other individual. You're not trying to diminish them in any way. You're honestly trying to help. And the best way to help them is to look critically at what they're saying. So I'd like all of you to take that into account if you're writing a review for me or even if you want to call into the show when you have something to say. Please be constructive. Right now, I'd like to give some examples of not constructive criticism. If someone shows you the plans for their new living room and you respond, go fuck yourself, that's not constructive. If you invite a friend to your child's play and your friend says that your child's the worst actress ever imagined, that's not constructive. She's six. If you call the number on the back of the truck that asks, how's my driving? and you say they should die in a horrible accident, that's also not constructive criticism. Now for some examples of constructive criticism. If you invite your friend to a play and your child performs, 
they can be critical. They can say, your child's not the best actor. Perhaps some extra lessons would help. I've never seen a tree behave like that, but I do like the confidence. With respect to the truck driver, if you witness someone driving erratically, feel free to call and tell the dispatch that. You don't have to make it personal. You don't have to wish them to die. Right now, let's take a call. Welcome to Clarity. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, Lubby. I'm John. I'm calling from Jersey. I gotta say I'm very upset about a lot of the content of your show. I listened to the whole first episode, and I just can't even begin to parse what I'm feeling here. Well, John, I appreciate the call, but it doesn't seem like we're gonna have much to discuss. Can you articulate any of your feelings? I don't even know where to begin. To be perfectly frank, I don't even know where to begin. There's just too much. It's like you're nailing me to the cross here. I don't understand. I try to do the best I can. I've got a sister. I've got a mother. I've got a wife. We're all in this together. I don't understand why you're drawing lines in the sand. You're trying to divide us. Look, John, I don't know if you were dropped on your head as a child, but I'm not trying to divide anyone. I'm trying to bring us together. If that's not clear, you may have greater problems than being frustrated at a podcast. There you go again, Larry. There you go. You can't help but insult me. I have nothing against you personally. I'm just trying to express myself. You have to go and bring my childhood into it. Like, I haven't been to therapy enough for that already. Thanks a lot, Larry. Thanks for stirring the pot. The, the hypocrisy. It's just unbelievable. You call the podcast Clarity, but you need to go to the optometrist, Larry. You're the one who's not seeing things clearly. How long did it take you to come up with that one? Did you write it down before you called? Is it on a post-it on your fridge? We got a comedian here, folks. Where are you headlining? Where can we see your show? You see, Larry, the mask's off. The mask's off, Larry. They can see you for who you are, Larry. You put on this big front like you're better than us. You're just as bad. You know it, too. You pretend. But I see through it. Can we trace this clown? Please tell me we can trace this clown. Larry, we're not the FBI. Okay, okay. I overreacted a little bit. Let's try to salvage this conversation. What do you want from me? How can I help you? You can start by being honest, Larry. Instead of this pretend, this make-believe. Like you're some kind of saint. You're here to save us all. Why don't you be a real person? It'd be more relatable. Get down from your pedestal. Get out of that ivory tower. Look, John. I never said I was perfect. That was never part of my message. I'm going through this journey with you. I'm here to help. Then how about you take some criticism? How about you man up and address it instead of just getting angry? How about that, Larry? Okay, okay. I see this for what it is now. In the words of a wise man, you're not a critic. You're just an asshole. You probably need me to spell it out like pterodactyl. That's not so hard. P-T. That was obviously rhetorical. A-C-T-Y-L. You know what, John? How about you soak your head in the Hudson and give us a call back? Bye. This episode is brought to you by Pickles. They're actually a surprisingly strong lobby. I've got a jar in front of me right now. Larry, where'd you get that? They're crisp. They've got plenty of dill and garlic. I can't wait to open them up. You're going to kill yourself. Put that down. I'll be fine. I have an iron stomach. Mmm. Oh. You see how well we sell these things? They're going to fly off the shelf. Sponsor us today.